Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins. And I almost paused for my response, but that's that's not it. I've been doing it by myself lately. Yeah, but Daniel's you can't, you here can't today. can't pause your response. Yeah. I know. And I can't be like, what? No, you can't do that. Only when no. I start, you I know. can do that. Which is a rare occasion these days. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, we have Bob Roberts Jr. who is on the podcast with us. Thanks and we for- can actually potentially introduce him as the infamous. Yes. No, he definitely is the infamous Bob Roberts. Yep. For sure. Yeah. So thanks, Bob, for being with us on I'm the podcast. I'm excited to be here, and I'm grateful you used my junior subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to call you junior. Yeah, I know. It sucks, All right. I have one of those unisex names. My real, you know, you want to know what my real name is? Go Bobby Jean. Bobby Jean. Yes, really? I, no, I'm just thinking awesome. Billy Jean right now. I know. I'm saying it's a I'm unisex thinking. name. Bobby Jean. Yeah. I'm confused. <laughs> All right. So Bob Roberts, <laughs> let's do, okay. So he is the founding pastor of Northwood Church in Dallas, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. He has written Lessons from the East. That's his latest book, Finding the Future of Western Christianity in the Global Church. And I actually, um, this is back when I was, I think I was in Montreal at the time, uh, or it was Korea when I came across his book, The Multiplying Church the new math for starting new churches. So Bob, I haven't told you this, but this is that book is the book that gave me a fire for multiplication, which were the seeds sown uh, that even caused me to, to want to come to Lifeway and to do new churches and all the ministry that I've done here is really from a lot of those seeds that you sowed through that book. So thank you. Well, I'm very grateful. Can I have $10,000? <laughs> if I if I had ten thousand dollars, <laughs> I'm teasing. That makes me happy. I'm serious, yeah. Daniel. Thanks, yeah. man. Yeah. No, it was uh, it was very inspirational for me. Uh, I think even before I read anything from Ed Stetzer too. So oh. there you go wow. on the air on the air officially. You officially. know, some people <laughs> some people are first in, and then some people just come along and you know kind of take advantage <laughs> of something that somebody else has already. <laughs> Yeah. The ground that someone else has already plowed. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, Bob, we're going to be doing the five leadership questions um, with you. But before we do that, man, you have a global ministry. If anyone follows you on Instagram or online, I mean, you got, you are always somewhere other than Dallas. So, <laughs> so talk to us about that, uh, the unique ministry that God's entrusted you with. Well, uh, about 27 years ago, our church became obsessed with missions. And as I was studying the concept of the kingdom of God, I realized that the church was the missionary. And if the church was the missionary and every member was to be a missionary, then how did I focus on a place and mobilize them? So we began to work in Vietnam and we've been there for 27 years. And now we start lots of churches uh, with people using their jobs. So they go back and forth. Well, we've had thousands of people go, a few hundred projects, spent millions of dollars. And so we start all these churches and we require them to work a hard place in the world. And so like last week I was in Mongolia with uh, one of our planters named Kevin Cox and Kevin has adopted that country. And we were meeting with different government leaders about how to engage society and, and uh, education and health for the most part. 
But from doing that in Vietnam and some other places, it opened up doors for me to begin to deal with human rights issues, namely religious freedom, religious persecution. So I began to work with our State Department, the UN, and a lot of other people going into very delicate places uh, to connect Christians and non-Christians to build bridges uh, because it's hard to kill people you become friends with. And so that's what I'm doing a tremendous amount of my time uh, working in sensitive places around the world. Wow. So how, how is that, how is that, uh, I guess, influenced your local ministry in your church? Dramatically. And I mean, it, number one, it's the base from which all of this took place and continues to take place. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't know, you could start a church and do everything that we're doing today. It it would just be impossible. Takes years to build the relationships, the credibility, uh, the engagement, the results from what you do. So I think, first of all, it was something that we just did as a church. So we began to work in Vietnam and through time I began to connect with the church. Frankly, I learned more about how to plant churches and grow them from what I saw in Vietnam and other places in the world than I did in the States. And so as I was learning from the global church, I'm back home preaching that. And these pastors from around the world come to our church. They're speaking. They're writing about that. And then as I begin to work with um, other people uh, around the world and human rights issues and that sort of thing, uh, our church would begin to pray for them. I could just go on and on and on. And it's it's basically what our church has become. So we're starting churches. And so we help them go to different countries, that sort of thing. So it, it's, it's defined what our church is and how we see the world, how we see the church and everything. So we have what we, dis- yeah. when we train planters, we teach that there's three expressions of the church. There's the uh, house church or the simple church or the cell church or the small group where we meet in community. There's the equipping church, which is the congregation and the global church that we connect to. Hmm. Hmm. I love that. That's a lot of fun, man. It is fun. I I live vicariously uh, through your social feeds and, you know, we interact. We have interacted some here and there. But, man, it's always exciting to learn from people who are just different from you and having different experiences. You know, you're not going to learn anything new by looking at the same sources as everybody else. So I'm very very excited to ask you this question. Um, who have you been learning from? I, lear- I learned from a lot of different people. I, I, I know this sounds trite, but uh, I'm passionate about reading through the Bible every year. And I believe God speaks. So between that, I love spiritual discipline. So I've been reading Martin lately. Uh, his book on solitude just really impacted me pretty dramatically. When, when I read theology, mm-hmm. I like to read uh, Keller and N.T. Wright. Uh, recently, because of all the different religions that I'm working with, I've had to brush up some stuff. So I've been reading F.F. F. Bruce and Martin O. on the Bible and scriptures and, and stuff like that. I'm big time into biographies. Every year I read two or three. I just finished one on Muhammad. Uh, I just finished another one on da Vin- Isaacson's Da Vinci. I love Walter Isaacson's biography. I got to know him a little bit, and I found out he picks Uh, the biographies he does on basically uh, people that are creative and push the bound. So I love that. I love to read Chernow. Chernow is a phenomenal writer on biographies. 
Uh, currently, I'm reading uh, Sapiens. Uh, no, he's great, but it's good. I like reading. Uh, I'm, I'm reading. Now, this guy's probably an atheist or agnostic, but I'm reading Sapiens uh, by Yuval Heron. Hmm. I'm a big fan of Fareed Zacharias. I've read him for 25, 30 years. David Brooks, Michael Gerson. I think those guys are more prophets to our nation than most pastors are. And then I'm learning mm. from other people like uh, Muslims, uh, Sheikh Bin Baya. He's an 85-year-old dude that uh, has written the documents for religious freedom in the modern world for Muslims. Another guy named Hamza Yusuf probably knows more about Christianity than most Christian theologians. Uh, he's a very close friend. Wow. He's my age. He, he teaches out at uh, Zaytuna College at USC. Learning a lot from my buddy Majid Muhammad. He's an imam. And, and listen, guys, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus eat pork? Did Jesus um, eat pork? Yeah, did he eat pork? I don't know. I don't think he so. Didn't. I think he sent a lot of so, to drown. No, he didn't because Majid asked me one day, do you want to be like Jesus? I said, yeah. He said, well, then don't eat pork. I said, what are you talking about? I told him about Peter. He said, Jesus didn't eat pork. So I told him. Oh, man, that's incredible. So you want to be like Jesus? And so Imam Majid said, absolutely. I said, then let's go drink some wine together. He said, what are you talking about? Said, it was the first miracle of Jesus. But he said, you're Southern Baptist. You can't drink wine. So I said, oh. Strong play, Bob. I know. I like but he it. told me, he said, I will drink wine when you turn water into it. So anyhow. <laughs> but I love, there's a rabbi, I read all his stuff, named Jonathan Sachs. He he has rocked my world. And a lot of the learning I do, I do from magazines. I do from interviews. I, I meet a lot of unusual kinds of people. So I'm constantly picking their brains. So those are some of the people that I'm learning from. But I think if you're going to engage the world, we can't be ignorance on fire anymore. We've got to understand the world. And so, you know, I mean, I, you know, I took this guy with me to Mongolia. I've got him reading a biography of Genghis Khan, a history book on Mongolia. I don't want guys just to read the Bible and missiology books. I want them to know the culture mm -hmm. and to be able to speak to the culture. And uh, that yeah. matters. So, so, Bob, if you were to talk to a few of our listeners here who – are reacting to your reading list and they're, they're like, wow, that's so much broader than I've ever read, but they're convicted and in, in hearing that, yeah, I, I do need to read the culture. I do need to understand culture a little bit more, which what, what one or two books would you say, Hey, start with these ones. What would you recommend? I would start if I was going to read. Uh, so here's what I would say, read a book. I would say read non-Christian authors, first of all, if you want to understand the culture. Okay. Because what we do, we just read reinforcing ideas. And the problem with that is we don't know how to talk to non-Christians. And so even when we preach, we're preaching to Christians, even in our evangelism. But when you read non-Christians, it's going to teach you how do you speak. So so here's what I would say. Uh I don't know. If you were to ask me to read just one or two books, I, I don't know. I would say start with Dallas <laughs> Willard, Divine Conspiracy, because he talks about the kingdom yeah. of God. 
and he's interacting with um, all these other people that are not Christians and what the Sermon on the Mount looks like and how we live it out. So I would say start with that one. I, I would say and I would also read E. Stanley Jones. I'm giving you two Christian authors. I know I shouldn't, yeah. but these guys get the public square. They understand how to move beyond tribal tribalism. They know how we get nervous as as tribal mm-hmm. evangelicals. And so I think those would be start with start with uh, uh, Dallas Willard, Divine Conspiracy, and start reading his footnotes. And if you do that, that'll lead you into some other books. Mm, that's good. That's really good. All right. So the next question is uh, your leadership team right now. Uh, what would the main point of emphasis be, both for your leadership team and also for yourself? Public square. Easy to answer. Okay. Everything's about public square. See, we have no privacy anymore, but we act as if we do. We have no privacy <laughs> anymore, true. but we're tribal. The whole world yeah. is listening. And so mm. my sermons, I mean, people listen to my sermons from all over the world, but not because I'm Matt Chandler. I'm not. They listen because I'm friends with people in Riyadh and in Hanoi and in Islamabad and Cote d'Ivoire and all these other places. And so when I preach Sunday morning, I'm constantly aware that there are people that are listening to me that are not in Keller, Texas. When I tweet, Mm. I'm constantly thinking, how is this going to play with a Muslim, a Jew, an agnostic or a Hindu or a Buddhist? When I do something on Instagram, what do I say about that? So for me, it's all about public square. Public square. How does it look when people come to my church that we say we want to reach non-Christians? And yet to a large degree, that means unchurched Republicans. What about Democrats? What about liberal non-Christians? Do we realize that how we talk about politics, how we talk about race, it's it's from people that we want to reach, but the very people that we want to reach, the way we say things turns them off from Jesus. And so living in the public square says, okay, if I really want non-churched people to follow Jesus, then how do I communicate my values, my truth without being hateful, mean-spirited, partisan, tribal, and most of us don't have a clue how to do that. And so, so, so go ahead. What, what are some ways to learn to do that? I mean, from a practical standpoint, you know, there's a, for somebody listening, like, so, you know, for, for the thing that's coming through my head is, is how do you do that and still be clear? Um, and, and how do you do that with, without being offensive. It's wonderful to do it. It will force you to be phenomenally clear, but it will get you out of speculative theology and secondary issues. So what happens is it will actually force your theology to go to the core. What do I really believe? What matters? What are non-negotiables? That's the first thing it does. And the second thing it does is What is the most positive, gracious, clear, kind way that I can say it? So it's doing two things. It's forcing you to clarify, what do I really believe that I am not going to compromise on? Now, if this is the case, how do I say say it in the most positive, clear, gracious way that I can? So can I give you an example? 
All Go right. So did you know that there is a Christian that, you know, what you know what the passion conference is for Christians, right? Did, you know, Louis Giglio right. and what he does. Did, did yeah, you know yeah. there's a seminar conference on the for podcast Muslims yesterday and it's held in Toronto every year. So I get to speak. They invite me to speak at that. Louis never asked me to speak at his, but I get to go speak at the Muslim thing. All right. <laughs> Tens of thousands of young people. So when I spoke a couple of years ago, I got up and I started out by saying, I am the, the shake introduced me. This is an evangelical pastor from Texas, Bob Roberts. Bob is my friend. Take it away, Bob. So I go up there and I go, how many people love Jesus in the house? All these Muslims start clapping and yelling because they love Jesus. They have to, to be a good Muslim. I said, how many of you believe that he was sinless? They start clapping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many of you believe that he walked on water? He performed miracles. They all start clapping. How many of you believe that, that his life pointed the way about how we're to live? They're really clapping now. How many of you believe that he's coming back one day to set everything in order? Shout if you believe it. And they're going crazy at this point. And how many of you believe that he died on the cross for our sins and that if we accept him as our savior, we can know him and spend eternity with him in heaven? And it got deathly quiet. And I said, yeah, I know you don't believe that, but I do. And I also know that many of you have been bashed by evangelicals because you feel like they don't love you. I want to stand here in front of you and say, this is one evangelical that believes Jesus did die on the cross for your sins. Whether you ever accept him or not, I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that he loves you. And furthermore, I want to baptize every single one of you. But even if you choose not to, I'm here to stand and say, I'm still going to support your religious freedom for one simple reason, I want you to choose God because you have the freedom to do it, not because it's forced. So literally, I'm explaining the gospel in that talk. That's incredible. So I don't compromise on it. Wow. Here's the difference. I'm just happy when I preach. Wow. I'm respectful when I preach. I, I make it very clear this is what I believe. And you can make fun of me. You can stone. But I don't get up there and scream and holler and blow snot. And then expect them. And guess what? Did you know that there are Muslims that I've met that want to follow Jesus? I don't meet many Muslims who want to follow Jesus because we trash their religion and then say, now, don't you want to follow him? I think apologetics wow. has moved from confrontational to relational. And so if we learn that, my job is to lift up Jesus. Now, think about it. The early church, did it grow because all these backslidden Baptists and Methodists were following Jesus? Not at all. It's because Jews and polytheists and, and, and Greek polytheists, they're not dissatisfied with their religion, but they're following Jesus because they see something fundamentally different. So here's my goal. Hmm. How can I share something fundamentally different that's attractive? And that requires a different kind of preaching, not a different message, just a different way of how I word it. Wow. That's good. Let's close yeah. them. <laughs> no kidding. It's fun. <laughs> I incredible. tell guys all the time. That's, that's I, incredible. I teach our church planners with our church planners. We train our church planners in mosque. So I literally talk to them about how to talk about Jesus, how to reach the lost in a mosque with an imam sitting there. We do the same thing in synagogues. Mm. Why do we do that? I want to model how to not compromise on your theology, but how to be civil and gracious with what you believe. That's what I want to model. 
I tell our guys all the time, you've not preached until you've preached in a mosque. Any, any preacher can preach in a church, but can you preach in a mosque? Can you preach in a synagogue? Can you preach at the university? Can you pe- preach at the State Department? Can you preach in, in places where there are non-Christians? See, here's what we've done to the gospel. We've said, get all our lost friends and bring them in. Ah, forget that stuff. Get invited to where the lost people are. Get invited to speak at their stuff. Then you're a minority speaking for Jesus in the public square. That's what the public square is. But there is another dimension of uh, dimension of public square before we run out of time that I want to talk about. And it's things like racism. So in the public square, if I want to reach a lost person, what is one of the biggest uh, you know, critiques of the church today. Uh, it's, it's, it's segregated. I want a church that people come to that's multi-ethnic because when a lost per- when a Christian walks into a church, if they see one race, they're fine with it. If an unchurched person who's never been to church walks in and they see it, they go, what's this about? Isn't this Christianity stuff for everybody? So there are certain things that if I want to reach lost people, they know better what a church ought to look like than even believers do. Not theologically, but socially, the impact for what Jesus did and what he said changes everything. And so we have to be aware of that. I love that. I love that. Now, uh, before we get to our next question, uh, just let's just hear a quick word from our sponsor for today. Do you ever feel like you don't know where to start with volunteer training? Or if you do, is it hard to get everyone in the same place at the same time? Well, Ministry Grid makes it simple to train every volunteer and leader in your church. With a library of over 3,500 videos and 800 courses, you'll find training for every ministry area and leadership level. From volunteers to leaders to ministry directors, Ministry Grid's scope and sequence of training makes it easy to know who needs what training. And here's the best news of all. For the month of August, you can get unlimited access to Ministry Grid for your entire church for just $399 a year. And you're locked into every year after that, into that price for $399. So if you want to take advantage of this incredible deal, just go to ministrygrid.com slash podcast. That's ministrygrid.com slash podcast. Now back to the episode. All right. So Bob, you obviously uh, are well-traveled and continue to be so. Uh, both stateside and globally, but what are one or two things that you have to do every day other than spiritual disciplines? Uh, what are one or two th- things that you have to do every day in order to stay sharp in your leadership? There are, th- there are really three things I do. And they're real easy. Number one, worship. So to me, uh, I'm a voracious journaler and I'm not a good journaler, but I just have a whole process that every day I get up really early and I've got my Bible out, my journal, and I'm, I'm interacting with it. God, what are you saying to me? I'm telling God what I'm excited about, what I'm frustrated with. I'm listening to what God is saying to me. So I, I, could, I cannot survive without worship. I, I, I mean, I, I've got to get my spiritual armor on. I've got to get my ears open. I've got to be alert to what's going to happen. Uh, and that starts with worship. I think the second thing is uh, because I travel and because I move a lot, I've got to read nonstop because I'm constantly in places. And the third thing that I have to ask myself, I mean, I did it this morning. I mean, when I got through praying and worshiping is what are three things I'm going to accomplish, execute on today? And so no matter what they are, it's it's at the end of the day, what are the results that I'm going to get out of the day? So worship, read and execute, whatever that looks like. That's good. good. Now, 
your home life? What does leadership in your home look like? Well, I'm an empty nester. So it frankly, after I got over, took six months to get over the sadness of our kids being gone, but now it's a wonderful thing and I don't want them back. Uh, so I would say, uh, I'm very close to my kids. They walk with God and, uh, my wife and I, my wife travels like I do on her own. And we do, sometimes we do things together. Sometimes it's me doing stuff, her doing stuff. It, it just varies. But I would say home life looks two things. Uh, number one, uh, it's it's about questions. Uh, you know, so when I'm with, you know, when you have adult kids, uh, you don't you don't you don't tell them what to do. You ask them questions to get them to think. So when I'm through with this, my son and I will be eating lunch. And uh, so it's always mm-hmm. about questions. What's going on? How can I help you? Uh, wh- wh- what are you struggling with? My son's a pretty successful businessman, so I don't know a thing about businessmen. But we'll talk about integrity and meaning and ministry, how he sees it as ministry. Uh, my daughter's the same. Uh, with my wife, I would say it's all about how am I helping her to accomplish what God's called her to do and questions. She's deeper in my ministry than ever before. So we, ha- we have a crazy life. I-, I could not do what I do when my kids were at home. It, you know, it gradually started happening when they were uh, in middle school. And I'm grateful for that because I would have been a lousy dad. Uh, it got, it got challenging when they were in high school, but, uh, I still kept that as a priority for them. So I would say they're still involved in ministry. You know, they travel with me for different reasons sometimes, and I love it. Yeah. Now what, what advice would you give then uh, other empty nesters listening in, um, and also, uh, other ministry leaders who are not there yet. Uh, but they're about to enter into that. It's the most productive time of your life. That's it. Hmm. You know, I, I struggled with, uh, I'm 61 and I really struggled with getting older because man, I want to play ball, you know, but, but there's something incredible that happens. Uh, if, if guys will, are willing to let go and go to that next level. It's called spiritual fatherhood. And it's phenomenal. So, I mean, for example, at GlocalNet now, I'm not the only speaker. As a matter of fact, all these young mm-hmm. pastors, they're doing all the training of church planters. I don't even go to the trainings anymore. I met some of them. They'll have me come in and speak if I happen to be available. But, but I think the most important thing is you're looking at empty nests. You're going to have more time. You're going to have more resources. I feel bad for a lot of pastors because they've not done anything to raise up spiritual sons. They're not raising up the next generation. And so they come to the end of their ministry at a church and they're going, what am I going to do now? I'm going to start all of a sudden it's, I want to start working around the world where the great tragedy is if you don't understand the world, you can go preach some sermons at some churches. But the truth of the matter is the global church isn't that interested in Western preaching and preachers coming to preach. But if you know how to mentor young guys, different ball game altogether. So there's research, by the way, that says your most productive decade is your 60s financially for businessmen. Mm. I would say that's true in other areas as well. But it's in accumulating the credibility that you've had. You know, a lot of guys want to start out and they want to be able to connect with global leaders like I do. It takes years to build those relationships. It's just not possible. And so I would say do I would say to guys in your 20s and 30s, think now about who you're raising up and you will always be relevant. Uh, 
But what that means is yeah. this. There's something else that's really key about that. That doesn't mean I'm going to be like, like, what was I doing last week? I was taking one of our guys who is a church planter. Well, what does he do now? He trains church planters. So he started 20-something churches out of his church now. So he's adopted Mongolia. They're going to start working in Mongolia. So here are things that I can do for him and in going into a country that he can't do for himself. So there's value on that end. But guess what? I've got guys now, about three guys that can literally take guys into countries that are very challenging countries that most Christians can't go to. So I don't have to go there, but here's what I can do. When there's unique situations in those countries, because of my relationships outside Christianity and this sort of thing, I can serve and I can do things that nobody else can do in terms of helping them touch countries, deal with sensitive issues. I think the key to leadership is summed up in the word transitions. We think the key to leadership is to learn a skill and do it like nobody's business. I disagree with that. Those who really change the world the most are people who don't do one thing. They have one message. And so they have multiple mm. skills at different age and they learn, okay, it's time to let go of this now. And it's scary to let go of what we know, but we can't pursue those things that are in front of us without letting go of what we had. And, and the problem is if our identity is based too much on our skill sets, we'll never grow beyond that. And so I think it's about releasing and grabbing onto where your future is. But it's not just releasing and letting go, saying I have no value there. It's letting go to a son or a spiritual daughter that we've raised up where they can do that. So in, in light of all that, Bob, what advice would you give the... 55-year-old, you know, 60-something-year-old who is thinking about succession but has nothing to look forward to and is hearing what you're saying and they're like, but my identity is this church. I wouldn't say it publicly, but it is because I've been here for decades or this is, you know, this is any other, and, and they don't really... They, and they and they don't they haven't prepared someone else or they don't even know how to go about doing that or and then they don't have anything else to look toward forward to. I mean, what advice do you give them? It's going to sound tried, I know, but I've actually talked to some guys that are in this situation, and I think I think it's it goes back, you know, Revelations one through four, the church at Ephesus. What, what did he what did he challenge that church with? Go back to your first love, and I think what that means is you're going to have to rediscover worship where you're listening. To what is Jesus saying to you right now? I think you're going to have to go back to childlike faith. And, and he'll start talking to you because you've got all this stuff that God has given you all your life. But you're going to have to get your identity, first of all, in Jesus. Here's the problem. If our identity is not in Jesus, we find our fulfillment in our ministry. Do you think Moses was fulfilled in the ministry? I don't think so. <laughs> He, he gave God five reasons why God, he didn't want to do it. And all five of his reasons were valid and they all happened to him. His fulfillment was not in leading the children of Israel in the desert. His fulfillment was in who God was. He was the friend of God. And I think that's what worship does. It gets us back to loving God. So I, I just think that's huge. So I think go back to that. You're going to have to reorient it. You've got to go back to childlike faith. You really do. Here's something else I would say. Everybody debates how to be filled with the Spirit. That's really not the question. 
The real question is, how do I follow the Holy Spirit? And here's what we've done in American mm-hmm. Christianity. We really know our one-pagers. We, we've learned from business, thank God, but we now have all our vision, mission, value, and action statements that we've put together. W- who needs the Holy Spirit to grow the church as long as we're gifted and we have a good action plan? I think the real pa- uh, challenge for ministry today in American culture is to learn to follow the Holy Spirit. And and what that's going to do, it's going to put you at faith. I have a crazy life, but but I'm constantly having to say, God, what do you want me? I mean, even right before I met with y'all, the most incredible opportunity has opened up. I I mean, I've been asked to speak somewhere and I'm just blown away. It's not a Christian group and it's, it's with a bunch of world leaders and it's going to open some massive doors. That's not in my action plan. It's just not there. Uh, you know, God, we've got to go back to adventure and wonder and let God open those unexpected things. You know how you felt like when you were a pastor and God called you to that first church? You never thought anybody was ever going to ask you to do it. Or, or, or ministry opportunities started open, opening. It's almost like you're going back mm-hmm. to that wonder. But it's not necessarily always big stuff mm. either. I mean, sometimes it's it's cleaning a toilet somewhere. It's just doing base mm. stuff. And, and I think the reason a lot of crazy doors get opened is I'm cleaning a lot of toilets around the world where I don't meet with world leaders. And it's just it's just crap work. But when you're with people and you're serving them, Man, God opens crazy doors. That's so good. Okay, so I have a feeling um, I'm not trying to lead the witness based on uh, the last <laughs> the last several minutes, but what would you tell your 20-year-old self about preparing to lead? I, I would say, number one, grow your soul, Bob. I'm sorry to say, I really didn't worship that much until I was, I'm talking about personally daily worship. I I did these little quiet time things I was taught, but I really didn't discover worship until I was in my mid thirties. And and I began to Mm -hmm. read Dallas Willard and I began to read Henry Nowen and Eugene Peterson. And, and I'm just now getting into Thomas Merton. I'd say, grow your soul be, be a deep person. Be a godly person. That's the most important thing. I mean, that's what you're going to take with you through eternity, your intimacy that you have with God. And I, I was more concerned about growing my church than I was growing my soul. Um, I would say be more focused on your core call uh, versus an action plan is the second thing I would say. Um uh, I, I was so obsessed. You know, I went through Lee, Bob Buford was is, was one of my mentors and I loved him deeply. I had some phenomenal mentors in my life. Uh, Leighton Ford and all these guys when I was young, they were pouring into me and Leighton's still alive. There's some of them that still do, but many of them have gone home to be with the Lord. And and and, and here's what they taught me. They, they taught me, Bob, it's going to take your whole life and be focused on Jesus Know your mission, vision, values, but just view them as things that God is using to get you up on a road that he's going to do things that are never going to be on your one pager. 
And then the third thing I would say that it's just huge, but I don't think if you, if you don't do the first thing, two things, you won't do the third thing. And the third thing is success isn't always going to be an attendance graph. You know, I was raised in Christian religious Baptist culture where you prayed right, you did right, and your church grew, 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 grew. And if it wasn't growing, then something was wrong. I've come to disagree with that. I learned ministry by vision. It's exciting. It's what we're all going to do together. We're going to grow this church. We're going to reach the It's fun. It's exciting. But in my 50s, God began to teach me about ministry by obedience. It's one thing, this fun vision that we're all pursuing, but sometimes he calls us to obedience. I remember when we intentionally desegregated our church. Man, we paid a price for that. We lost a lot of people. It was painful. I'd never had that happen in my life. But God spoke to me and our elders and, and, and our church leadership in a profound way. For us to be the church God wanted us to be meant that we were going to lose some people. We started reaching out to Muslims. It was fine as long as we were meet, reaching Muslims around the world doing traditional mission work. But when we began to reach out to the Muslims that were our next door neighbors and I became friends with imams, we started being called the Muslim church. And I never compromised what, what we believed. It was painful. Hmm. Here's what I was learning. It's one thing to have a central message that everybody's excited about, a tribal message that we're all in agreement on. But what does it mean to grow the church, not in the moment, but for future generations? What does it mean to grow not just a church that's growing numerically, but it's growing spiritually and is connecting with the culture, with the people who really need the gospel? Sometimes there's a price to that, and we've got to be okay with paying it. And that's when I begin to read about there is no joy without suffering. I mean, you know, we, we think joy is happiness. It's not. And I begin to look at the life of Paul and the ministry of Jesus. Why do we have this idea that everything's going to be a piece of cake when we follow Jesus? It's not. And that's not bad. But here's what I would say. The things that pained us the most are the very things that have opened the biggest doors and why we're engaging the world and doing off the chart stuff that I never would have dreamed of in a million years. And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, he is the infamous Bob Roberts. Junior. Junior. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really appreciate that because, you know, I'll talk about healthy conflict and man, now I'm like, well, I, I, I thought I knew what healthy conflict was in my yeah. environments, but um, what you're doing and having the courage, the courage to confront, but the courage to be clear is probably more um, a way to say that with clear, confronting with clarity and in a healthy way. It it does take so much more time and effort and energy and. Yeah, but I don't. The it's what God calls us with, to. Yeah. Yes, it's fraught with so many landmines and so many yeah. everything. But man, yeah, Bob, thanks for thanks for leading the way for us uh, for the church. I feel like I could I could just listen to you all day. <laughs> would you send me? Todd and I would you send me ten thousand dollars? <laughs> I'm teasing. That's Daniel, man. That's that's Daniel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Bob, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Today. I love you guys. I'm proud of you. I'm excited for you, Daniel and Todd. Keep it going, guys. We will. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Well, we hope you enjoyed that episode with Bob. If you enjoyed that, you're probably going to enjoy the Group Answers one with Chris Surratt and Brian Daniel as well. They are part of the Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network family, and they've covered great topics like building a growth track and power ranking groups of systems. So just look up Group Answers on your favorite podcasting app and subscribe today. 